many questions, and um, given <laughs> given the nature of the questions, my guess is I'm not going to get to them all. Um, we'll see how far I get, how far we get. When the guiding questions arise, am I aware of what, what is obvious? They're usually met with words, answers in the mind. Feels like lots of words. Can the awareness practice be wordless? Just an awareness of experience without labels and responses? This sometimes happens for certain, at certain times for many people and more frequently perhaps for others, that the use of the questions actually, since it's so close to other kinds of thought, it just creates, uh, we have a habit of answering questions with thoughts um, or words, that it creates more words in the mind. The intention of the questions is not to um, generate words. It is to kind of spur the interest property of our minds. And so if you find using words to be um, too busy or that your mind you can't just let go of the words. Um, you could explore some other possibilities. I mean, it's if you just know that you're aware, you don't need to ask the question. And I talked last night about kind of a wordless question. And just kind of a cock of the mind, <laughs> a raise of the eyebrows. <laughs> as a possibility of a way to uh, point the mind in that direction without using words. You might just think of a question mark. If you're using the words or using the questions, and here the, the, the question is written, when the guiding questions arise, and this is something that, um, uh, it's, 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 a, it's a particular use of the phrase that leads me to, rec uh, to wonder if the person writing the questions is simply sitting and then the question appears in the mind, am I aware? You know, if that's happening, that, that does start to happen actually, that we don't have to consciously do the asking of the questions, that they just begin to kind of spontaneously arise. And that, uh, that's often wisdom at work when the questions spontaneously arise. If you find there's a kind of a tendency to think with those, you could just recognize that tendency and see if you could set that aside. You don't have to try to stop it, but, but you know, that's one piece of the experience. 
um, the thoughts arising in the mind are one piece of our experience. There's a whole range of other experience happening at the same time. And so if the questions simply arise and the mind answers them with words, that's what you're, that's what's happening, that's what you're noticing. If you're oriented just to the words, you will miss the broader uh, range of experience. And so a little bit of broadening or uh, opening the container a, a bit to to see, you know, what else is here. It may, it may be just a sense of making a gesture. Again, if words don't, uh, if words trigger more words, a, a feeling of a gesture of broadening what we're attending to. In any moment, there are thousands of things happening in the present moment. So many things happening in the present moment. But there's usually something or other that is kind of sticking the attention. And we've been watching that. And um, the basic practice is to, to follow the attention, to see where the attention goes, but when the attention starts sticking to things that are kind of in the way, sometimes attention will stick to uh, pain or um, something that creates more reactivity in the mind. Sometimes if thoughts are arising in the mind, the attention can stick to thoughts too. And so if there's something sticky in the mind like that, I think I offered the other day the possibility of just kind of broadening. Okay, so there's thoughts happening in the mind, but but there's also body sensation and there's also so again, you know, kind of a broadening perspective. You might uh if you find words not very helpful, see if you can find perhaps um some images that might create or convey to you uh the question of awareness. What does it mean to be aware? Maybe, uh, I've, I've never explored this possibility before, but uh, maybe uh, some place or some experience that evokes awareness for you could be used as a uh, inclining towards awareness because all of the question is intending to do is to incline our minds in the direction of awareness and in the direction of what we are aware of. So the awareness practice can be wordless and it moves in that direction. So if you are um, feeling or seeing there's a lot of thinking in there, well that's partly it's one thing to notice and then perhaps some subtle shifts or adjustments to the practice to help take you to the more wordless place in practice. Awareness itself is more like a mirror reflecting experience than a radio reporting on experience. So it's, it's a more, uh, it's using a visual metaphor, but uh, it's more like that than uh, a a um, a set of tracking words saying, and this is what's happening, and this is what's happening, and this is what's happening. That's uh, that's 
That's not awareness's function. Would you please elaborate on your instruction to notice how awareness is operating? Do you mean, for example, awareness feels focused or broad or low level or sharp? So beginning to point to the recognition that we can know something about the working of awareness. And in this case, the use of the word awareness, I'm using it more broadly in a way. Uh, I, I, u- I, I would say that generally the word, when I use the word awareness, I mean mindfulness. But it's a, it's a slippery word and sometimes intentionally I use it in a more vague way or a broader way. And so um, sometimes when I talk about awareness and actually at one point I so ask Saito Otejani this question. I said, what do you mean when you use the word awareness? You know, almost every teacher has a different definition of what they mean when they use the word awareness. Um, you know, some mean consciousness, that knowing factor of mind. Um, some mean mindfulness. Some mean something else. And basically he said, well, a lot of the time I mean mindfulness, but um, what mindfulness is in the, in the functioning of mindfulness is the working, or, or what awareness is, I'm sorry, what awareness is in its functioning is the working of the five faculties together. The five faculties being faith, energy, mindfulness, concentration, and wisdom. And he said that that the strength or weakness of those qualities will create different experiences of awareness. So um, just thinking about, uh, um, you know, mindfulness, concentration, and energy. When uh, energy is low, we can we can see that the the attention the the experience feels a certain way. When concentration is strong, experience may feel a certain way. When faith is strong or weak, there may be a different flavor to the experience of receiving our experience to to what it means to receive our experience. When wisdom is strong or weak there will be different uh, um, recognitions and understandings that come with awareness. And so we can think of the broader meaning of awareness as a process or functioning of mind 
and not a specific uh, factor of mind. And so it will be very different at different times. So when I'm talking about being, you know, beginning to be aware of how the awareness is operating, it's, uh, and I offered several suggestions, you know, you might recognize or notice, um, is awareness noticing things one thing at a time? Picks up on one thing, then another thing, then another thing. And maybe that picking up on one thing and then another thing and another thing feels jumpy. Or maybe it feels like it's flowing from one thing to another. Maybe it feels like the awareness is moving to objects. We have the experience of awareness going out to hear the sound of a bird or awareness going out to see something. So we might have the experience of of, uh, a moving awareness Or we might have an experience of awareness being still, very still, and just like objects are appearing in that stillness. More like objects experience coming into the awareness. It might be that the Awareness is interested in focusing on something, narrowing down to look at something in particular. It might be more interested in being broad. So these kinds of uh, uh, being interested in the way that the mind is paying attention rather than the what, what it is paying attention to. So in that case, of exploring, for instance, how the attention is moving between objects, there's more of an interest in kind of the nature of how the mind is looking at objects and not so much interested in what it is looking at. We might experience, uh, you know, if, if the attention is jumpy from thing to thing, it might feel like popcorn. It might feel like, it's just like, but we're not so interested in or even trying to know each piece of popcorn, but just that the mind is jumping and popping from experience to experience. So that's being interested in how the awareness is knowing rather than the objects of awareness. This also, this question also leads into uh, a question that I think I will just name, but I, w- I think I'll address it at another time. And that is, um, there's several words that are overlap and seem kind of similar, and it can be interesting perhaps to explore the difference. And I mentioned a little bit, you know, consciousness, mindfulness, awareness, um, so there's several like this, uh, including a mind, which is uh, sometimes the Pali word is chitta, and another word that's translated as mind is uh, mano. So there's different words that kind of point at the mind, p- 
point at awareness, point at the functioning of mind. Um, and I, I, I have some things that I can say to, to kind of tease those apart a little bit. Not that I know that this is how the Buddha would have teased them apart, but just in my own uh, exploration, my own speaking to others about their perspectives on this, I don't think there's, uh, you know, cut and dried answers to these, but there's perhaps some usefulness to exploring the question, those questions. But it feels to me uh, like this is not the moment for that question. And so the question uh, pointed to some of that. And so I just wanted to um, uh, say I'm not ignoring that part of the question. I'll I'll, uh, talk about it at another time. This style of practice in particular, and mindfulness in general, requires a lot of trust. For one thing, it requires that we trust that our own mind and body is constantly looking for, interested in our own well-being. Could you elaborate on this? It seems to me so important in key aspect of the practice that I have been practicing in this way, and this is beautiful, so I'm, I'm, I'm sharing this with you all. Practicing in this way, relax, receive, allow, trust, and learn. But I'd like to hear more about trust and the role in our practice. This is a big question. I often address trust in multiple times throughout the retreat because it's such an important um, piece for us. The particular question here about trusting that our mind is interested in our own well-being I'll speak to that piece of the question now. There's many pieces to this exploration of trust. So this is a kind of a a paradox or a a curious hmm, piece of trust because when we look at our minds conventionally, and certainly before we start practicing, uh, not necessarily that our minds are very trustable. There's a lot of delusion in there. If our minds were completely interested in our own well-being, completely understood what it means to be deeply interested in our own well-being, there would be no need for the instructions. But our interest in well-being, and it it does feel to me like there's a a kind of a biological movement towards well-being. I've mentioned that, that 
in many ways it's fortunate that we have this this uh, deep wish in our system for homeostasis, for well-being, for balance. In the book I mentioned the other day, Self Comes to Mind, Antonio Damasio speaks to this. He, he, he mentions this point a lot, that we, our system is oriented to move in the direction of uh, well-being. And yet, our system moves in the direction of well-being based on the information that it gets, which is often very short-sighted and limited. So from the time that we're babies, I mentioned this the other day, you know, we are orienting towards well-being in terms of don't want to be hungry, want to be fed, don't want to be wet, want a clean diaper, you know. And the, 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 the system is designed to do things to move it in the direction of having more comfort, having more ease. And so the baby cries and mom responds, her dad responds. Hopefully mom or dad respond. And so, you know, the the system orienting towards well-being begins to learn to some extent, oh, when I scream, I get what I want. Or when I scream, this unpleasant experience goes away. And so our, sh- our minds initially are pretty short-sighted in terms of well-being, uh, looking for how do I get rid of this unpleasant experience in the most... Uh, quick way possible, or uh, what, what can I change in order to have this uh, unpleasant experience go away to ha- and to have a pleasant experience instead. And so we're oriented towards that, uh, that movement. And basically, we learn through this process that in getting what we want, we get a little bit of a sense of well-being. There's a little more well-being than we had before. And yet, uh, so, so we, we have that happen to us over and over again. And basically, our system begins to come to the conclusion that that's as good as it gets. That's the best way to happiness. If I can get rid of unpleasant and get pleasant, that's where I can find happiness. So this is the si- our system, our organism is, you know, it, it's, it's designed to take us towards well-being and yet it, uh, it doesn't quite see things um, fully. There is happiness and ease when we get what we want. There's a moment of, of that, uh, huh, feel like I figured it out, got this pleasant thing, got rid of this unpleasant thing. So there's a moment of, of, of happiness. And often in our um, short-sighted way of thinking about things, 
the happiness of the getting or the happiness of the getting rid of is the most important piece. And we don't actually notice that there's another piece involved because we're not so conscious of it. And that is when um, we want something or want to get rid of something, there's the feeling of aversion and wanting that arise in our experience in the present moment. And those experiences are not well-being. Wanting arises in the mind, immediately well-being disappears. But we don't notice that the disappearance of well-being is connected to the arising of wanting. We think it's connected to the fact that we don't have what we want. So this is our mind misunderstanding experience. And so another piece of the little, the, the hit of well-being that we get when we get something that we want is the fact that that particular wanting for that thing or that particular aversion for that thing we want to get rid of, that particular wanting or aversion momentarily goes away. And so when we get something that we want or get rid of something that we don't want, we get a double hit of happiness or double hit of that's good. We get the thing and the wanting goes away. The aversion goes away. We aren't so conscious of the benefit of the, or the, the happiness of the wanting go away. We're more attuned to thinking that the happiness is coming because I got what I want or got rid of what I didn't want. And so when we start to pay attention with mindfulness, and we listen to the Buddha's instructions, okay, notice wanting when it arises in, this, in, the, in the being. You know, it's like, this is, this is, wanting is arising? Know that wanting is arising. Instruction from the Satipatthana Sutta. Simple instruction. That simple instruction takes us directly to the non-well-being of wanting directly touches, touches into that. We feel immediately the offness of wanting, the, the tilting, the leaning, the offness of aversion. We feel it immediately. And so the mind is now starting to get better information and that very same system that wants to move towards well-being begins to understand that the arising of wanting is already not well-being. It begins to understand the wanting is not helpful, the aversion is not helpful. And so there is a level of trust that we have in our, you know, kind of our organism in a way, but that, so the trust that we do, that the organism, our being, wants to move to towards well-being, we do trust that. But we also have to be quite conscious 
of uh, whether the mind has uh, a layer of delusion. You know, we don't want to trust our defilements. We don't want to trust anger to be the way towards well-being. And so the the way we can trust our organism to move towards well-being is through this practice of mindfulness and wisdom, this orientation towards what's happening in this moment. How is it in this moment? Our system gets information that helps it to move more uh, in the direction of real happiness, real ease, real peace. When wanting is um, clouding the mind, when wanting is filtering our mind, uh, wanting, hmm, wanting believes that having that thing is the most important thing. You know, the job of wanting is to attach to something, to stick to something. And so that's what's going on when wanting is in the mind. It's trying to stick to something. When wanting is trying to stick to something, wanting is not going to uh, let you know that, oh, by the way, if wanting were to disappear, there wouldn't be a problem. Aversion either. Aversion doesn't know that. Aversion believes it needs to get itself apart from something. So aversion is not going to tell you, oh, by the way, if aversion lets go, there's not a, there's not a, uh, a need Or there's not, there's not the issue, there's not the problem in the way that we think it's a problem. And so this points to another area of trust. And that is, you know, what is it that we put our trust in? What do we, what do we trust? We can trust in some ways this movement of the organism towards well-being and yet it needs wisdom and awareness to give it information that will take it towards true well-being. Otherwise it's going to operate in this very short-sighted mode of get the next hit of happiness, get the next, get rid of the next thing that's unpleasant. Again, thinking that's as good as it gets, that's, as, that's the best I can do. So what do we trust? We trust we trust the wisdom. So you know, initially we may need to trust what the teachings are, the practices and teachings. And and that can be a leap of faith. Trust. The word trust actually is um very closely related to the word in Pali sada that's translated as faith 
I often will translate it as trust, sometimes as confidence. And so, um, uh, initially in this practice, we are asked to trust the, uh, the wisdom that the Buddha is offering. Trust that instruction when wanting is arising in the mind, know that wanting is arising in the mind. It, it takes a leap of faith at times. Uh, certainly when I first heard that instruction, I was uh, looking at anger and uh, somebody sent me a book about mindfulness practice and didn't understand much of what was in the book, but I got that little bit of wisdom out of it. You know, something along the lines of, when your mind is reactive, just know that that's happening. It's like, okay, I'm so what I'm supposed to do is when I'm angry, know that I'm angry? I had no clue how that would work. No sense of trust that it would work, actually. But, you know, I'd kind of hit bottom and tried everything else I could think of to normalize my life and had had no success with anything. And here comes this book that says, try this. It's like, well, okay, I have no idea how that's going to work, but I'm willing to give it a shot. Let's see what happens. If I can know, okay, this is anger. And it was amazing. Very quickly, I understood the benefit and how it helped. The idea of it made no sense to me at all. But when I practiced with it, it was uh, very quickly supportive, very quickly completely new terrain in terms of my ability to navigate my anger. So sometimes we have to trust the teachings, trust the Buddha. Sometimes trust someone who says something. It's like, uh, you know, borrow. It's like borrowing, borrowing somebody else's faith or borrowing somebody else's wisdom. Many, many times during the course of my practice, my teachers have said, try this. And I've thought, really? Okay, I'll give it a try. I don't know. So it's, it's kind of like borrowing that, borrowing that trust or borrowing from others and trusting. See, so it's, it's that, that trust at that level is like um, somebody has proposed a scientific hypothesis and you're willing to run the experiment. Just see. See, see, see what it is, how it works. And so that's a beginning level of trust. And so in order for our trust in our organism to really fully take us towards freedom, and I think at some point Gill has used the phrase that there's a biological imperative towards freedom. And I think that's true when mindfulness and wisdom are providing the information to our system. When mindfulness and wisdom are working, 
the system wants to go towards freedom. And at some point, I talked the other day about that arch. Of at first, it's like we're climbing up the arch, trying to get to the top of the arch, and we're working hard. And at some point, I said, Joseph used this analogy. He says that the arch flips. And then instead of having to try so hard, all we have to do is let go. And we gravitate in the direction of freedom. And so as we practice with mindfulness and wisdom, wisdom strengthens, mindfulness gets more continuous, and we make less effort. And there's a very natural movement for wisdom to begin to run the show instead of defilements running the show. And then we can have more trust in settling back and just being willing to watch. And that doesn't mean that defilements won't arise, but it's more like they arise in this container that's able to see them. At one point, I was doing my practice in my room at at Shui Umin, and I had a roommate, and I do the practice in my room because I primarily do lying meditation. That is my main posture. And I had confirmed with Saito I could practice in my room and do all of my practice in my room. Um, And so, you know, that's why I was practicing in my room. And my roommate was very respectful. She did her practice in the hall and she kind of gave me the room as a little meditation kuti. It was fantastic. And most of the days, you know, I could probably, I could count on like long stretches of hours where it would just be silent in the room. And then one day, one middle of one afternoon, I hear the key in the lock and it's like, no! The mind just like, but but I saw it. I saw the arising of that no, that aversion, and the mind was so present. It was just like it was. It was a whole cascade of defilements, but it was just like watching dominoes fall. It's like there was there was the mind that was witnessing it all, and there was it was such a sense of uh, stability to be with that. It was more like. Oh my gosh, look at that. Look how look at all those defilements and how they trigger each other and wow, that's incredible. When wisdom gets strong, we can even trust when defilements arise that they are known, that they're not functioning in the same way as defilements. They are they are seen and they live their life, they do their thing, and we learn, and we learn. And so as wisdom gets stronger, we, uh, we start to really be able to trust the mindfulness and the wisdom. And that's when relax, receive, allow, trust, and learn kind of begins to take its own course. And we have to get out of the way because our agendas, our thoughts about how we're going to get to freedom, we don't know. Any ideas we have about how we're going to get to freedom, they're probably wrong. 
And so our own path, wisdom, wisdom guides our path. And it may not be in the way that we expect or what we think we need to learn or... any sensible thing at all that we can connect to. And we have to, we, we, we begin to have more trust in the wisdom and that trust in what is arising and the ability to be there for it. and a sense of amazement of what we learn along the way. And the other day I mentioned um, unfamiliar experience and, and how it's really useful to begin to get comfortable or to at least explore the edges of allowing uh, unfamiliar experience and not kind of freaking out when things are unfamiliar. Of course, if something unfamiliar happens and we freak out, we just have to know that. We can't control our reactions. And yet the uh, process of learning how to be comfortable with the unknown, with the unfamiliar, that's another area of trust. It's another area of um, takes a deep trust. Another area of growth, another area of uh, really having to let go of being in charge. That Letting go of being in charge, I think, is one of the core, the core self-functions, or the, the, the being in charge is one of the core self-functions, and letting go of it is one of the deepest and most challenging <laughs> parts of our practice. And so a lot of what we get to do is watch the wanting to be in control, wanting to know the next thing that's coming, Noticing the fear that arises when we realize we have no clue what the very next split second will be. And so we meet our reactivity to the unfamiliar, to the unknown. And that's the path. That's part of the path. At certain points of the path, that is how the path unfolds. Through meeting the reactivity to <laughs> the unfamiliar some points in practice, it feels like, and it actually is a kind of a truth, that uh, we do not know what the very next moment will be. And it can feel very unsettling. It feels like 
You're standing on the edge of a cliff being asked to step into the abyss. And that takes trust to step into the abyss. And what happens in the next moment is that you find yourself again standing on the edge of the cliff. Knowing what's here now and realizing that the next moment you also have to trust stepping in to the unknown. And so all through our practice, trust plays a role. It feels to me from the very beginning where we are borrowing trust through to the time when we're feeling like we're seeing for ourselves a confirmation of the value of the practice and trusting it because of our own, uh, our own um, verified experiences. We see the value, we recognize, oh, this is helpful, so we're willing to keep going. Right up to the point where we have to let go, not knowing what we're letting go, letting go into. Deep trust. So that feels like enough to me tonight. It's only three questions, but I'll keep the others and a couple days I'll bring them in. So let's sit together for a few minutes.